Welcome to Kind of Christian. So one thing I've always struggled with when it comes to faith is the concept of reconciling evolution and intelligent design. Can they coexist? Does one make sense? I don't know. So in order to answer this question, I decided to reach out to one of the smartest people I've had the privilege of meeting, Dr. J.P. Moreland. Now, Dr. J.P. Moreland is the Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at Talbot University. He's also been voted by the best schools as one of the 50 most influential philosophers alive today. This is one sharp dude. So we sit down and we get into everything about evolution, intelligent design, evidence for the supernatural, and I ask him point blank, how do we know we're not all just brains in a vat? It's a really interesting interview. I hope you guys enjoy it. Please listen to Dr. J.P. Moreland. We are sitting here with one of the 50 most influential living philosophers, hopefully living. I mean, right across from me yes, today. I think I'm alive. That's right. Well, we can try and prove that <laughs> in some way throughout this, which would bring up an interesting debate. But J.P. Moreland, thank you so much for joining us today. All right. Great to be with you. Great to be with uh, JP you. is one of the most prolific authors, uh, scholars, writers, has a really interesting background, too. You have a background in hard science, chemistry, and also a abstract science with philosophy, and you merge those, you have those two worlds collide together. Yes, I took my undergraduate degree in physical chemistry. I was actually uh, accepted for a full ride to do a PhD in nuclear chemistry at the University of Colorado, but I went on this staff of a campus ministry uh, crew, which it's called today, and then eventually did a, a four-year degree in theology and an MA and PhD in philosophy. So from you could have been a nuclear engineer yes. and instead took up something which, as we're going to get to, might be infinitely more complex, right? Well, it could very well be. I have found philosophy to be a very challenging field of study. So, JP, I want to start with Tell us a little bit about your faith background, where you're at today, what you believe. Give us sort of your, I don't want to say testimony, but just where are you at right now? Well, I was born in Kansas City, Missouri, and attended a, a mildly liberal Methodist church as a, as a boy. Didn't know the difference. Jesus was kind of a middle-class moralist white guy. And I went to the University of Missouri and became a Christian my junior year through a case for the for the historicity of the Gospels, and uh, I, I was persuaded. Uh, and since then, I have just continued to grow. I've been a Christian of 52 years, and um, I am I'm beyond convinced that it's all true. I, I have no doubts about it. Uh, I'm at a stage of my life where for a long time, I'm just very, I'm mean, going to feel very confident. doesn't mean that uh, I, I I don't have questions or or things like that, but I've seen too much. I've I've spent too much time reading uh, arguments against what I believe, and I just don't find them to be plausible as much as the, the case for Christianity. So I'm in a good place. Uh, I'm looking forward to to uh, dying. Uh, I, I've I've, had, I've heard you say that in a yeah. few in a few talks. That does that strike the audience? always in a, in a weird well, way? Well, it, it does, but what I mean by that is not, I, I, I have a wonderful life, I have got precious grandchildren, and a dear wife, and good friends, and I, and I, I believe that I have work to do left, and I want to be here for them, but I, I've done 
I've done an awful lot of reading on near-death experiences that are credible in my view. And um, the other side is just so magnificent that I don't know how anybody could, could absorb what it's going to be like and, and not want to be there. And so I, I am at a point where I look forward to that. Now, I don't look for, like a friend said, I, uh, death is not bothering me. It, I'd just rather not be pulled through the keyhole, you know, so yeah. I don't want to suffer when I'm dying. I'm not looking forward to that lengthy hospitalization. But the act of dying itself and uh, what, what awaits me, I'm completely confident. I, I, know, there, I know heaven is real. And, uh, and so. So you've mentioned, all right, so you've studied, so the historicity of the Gospels is convincing to you. The academic case is strong for you. Yes. Tell me about, because you've spoken at length about supernatural yes. occurrences. Do you weight that heavily as part of your overall I do. I experience and why you think Christianity is, in fact, valid? Yes, I think that... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, if Christianity is true, then there ought to be uh, manifestations of God's actions in the world. And a lot of people think that miracles are pretty rare, but actually that, that's not true. Um, there are obvious and uh, Book of Acts style miracles happening in the hundreds and hundreds of thousands each day all over the world. And uh, it's just that people don't know about them. I'm writing a book right now. Uh, that I hope will be coming out in about 10 to 12 months uh, that recounts my own journey and those of my friends who have and what they've seen and heard and I have seen and heard that uh, list five kinds of miracles uh, in this book, specific answers to prayer, uh, healings, uh, ways that God has spoken through dreams and visions or prophetic uh, word, prophetic words that, that, and then um, angelic and demonic manifestations. I've, I, I, I have three angels that are with me uh, all the time. And I, and I know this in a way that would, the evidence would, uh, would be judged as valid in a court of law. And then finally, near-death experiences. So these things are happening all over the place. People just don't like to talk about it. No, well, you brought up angels, and that yeah. was actually a question I was going to ask you uh, about, but you brought it up. So... You said you have three angels that are yes. with you, that you have cre credible reason to believe yeah, is, is a right. real experience. So uh, talk to me about that. And, I, and for, the, for the listener, I mean, this is a, this is a man with a, a master's in hard science, right? Yeah. Or, yeah. And right. so you were you coming to this from, you have a scientific background. You're aware of what can be proven in and out of the laboratory. Right. And so you say you have three angels with you. Yeah. I, I, uh, in, I'm... I'm going to guess the year, I think it was something like 2004, I went to a church in Seattle to speak, and a woman came up to me after my talk and said, I wanted to let you know that uh, while you were speaking, there were three angels standing around you, a tall one behind you and two shorter ones on either side. Well, I thought she was crazy. I had no inclination to believe her whatsoever. I did find out from the pastor that she was a really great Christian, mature Christian woman, but I thought that she was just hallucinating or something. So I came back home. That was like in April or May of the year. And then the next school year started in September, and I was going through a real hard time. Been a Christian about 30 years at that point, and I prayed a prayer I'd never prayed in my life. And that was that if I said, God, if those angels were real, and if they're not here, would you send them back to guard me right now? I feel vulnerable. And would you let me know they're here? Now, I'd never prayed for angelic help. 
I'd always pray that God would help me, but, but I asked for angelic protection. Well, about a week and a half later, I have the email in the other room. I have a whole file on this. But I got an email from a graduate student named Mark Stepp, and uh, he said, JP, I've been waiting for a few days uh, to send this to you because I was afraid of what you'd think of me. But I talked to a couple of the other grad students, and they said that I should send it to you. And it, it, the basic idea is that in class uh, about uh, three four days ago in Meyer 109 Metaphysics, um, for about 10 to 15 minutes, three angels appeared around you, a tall one behind you and two shorter ones on either side. So I called him into my office and I have a picture. He drew me a picture in pencil that's in my file in there. And he said, this is what I saw. And I said, well, what did you do? And he said, well, first of all, I thought I was seeing things. So I rubbed my eyes like crazy to try to get them clear. Well, I know that happened because I was telling this story a few years later and another student of mine was in the audience and he sat in the chair behind this guy. And he remembered the day in class where he was going nuts, rubbing his eyes right at the beginning of the semester. And he almost asked Mark if he could take him to the men's room to help him wash his eyes out. So um, he saw a tall angel behind me and two shorter ones on either side of me. And that's what he saw. They were robed without faces, okay? Uh, about a year and a half, Later, I got a, an email from a lawyer, businessman lawyer, who had been going through anxiety and depression, which I know I've, I've done that myself. And he said, I'm not a student. Could I come to your office and visit? Would you help me? And I did. So we met and uh, I prayed over. I got him after we talked. He got on his knees and I laid hands and prayed over him. And that was it. A year and a half later, I got an email from him. It's in this file. You can look at it after we're finished. And he said, I've been holding something back from you for since we met. You might not remember me, and I did. He said, when you got me down on my knees and I closed my eyes, I felt presences come into the room. And when I opened my eyes, I saw three angels that were standing around you, guarding you as you prayed over me. And uh, and." Uh, I thought I'd better tell you. Well, I asked him, have you ever heard anything about my previous? He said, I don't understand what you're asking me. We had no clue about any of this. All right, fast forward. Uh, uh, I, I shared this to a group on campus uh, and I get while I was giving a talk at Biola University. And, and that night, I got an email from a student who told me that she has a, an ability to see supernatural things and that she before I started talking had actually spotted the taller and the two shorter angels uh, that had come in the room with me and guard guarding me and to, and she sent me the email and said you know I wanted to let you know that I will validate this because I saw them myself before you even mentioned it wow and then one last one about two years ago I was uh, up in Portland Oregon uh, an apologetics conference, and I was sitting at the book table uh, t while we were on break. I'd spoken that morning, and a woman comes up, and I had a buddy of mine that I'd taken with me, and two uh, of the secretaries that are a part of the apologetics program, and they all heard this. And, I, and, and she said, I, I, uh, Dr. Moreland, I, I'm a, I'm, I've been a Jewish atheist my whole life. I came to Christ about a year and a half ago. Your writings have helped me. Thank you. But she said, I wanted to tell you that when you were speaking this morning, and I don't know what you're going to think of me, but I saw angels. I said, stop. 
don't go any further. I want to ask you some questions. I said, did you notice an, uh, a number of them? She said, oh, yeah, there were three of them. And I said, okay. Were they located anywhere? Were they kind of floating above me? Or she said, no. There was one behind you and one on either side. And then I said, were they pretty much the same size? Oh, no, no, no. She said, the one behind you is really tall, and there was one on either side that were shorter. And I said, do you know anything about my past experiences with angels? And she said, I know, I know you as an apologist. I've read a couple of your apologetics books, but to tell you the truth, I don't really know much about you besides about your, your apologetics writings, but I, you know, I'm glad to meet you. She had no idea. So those are five different people who saw three, not five, standing in the same position and having the same relative size. And I don't know what, what you do with that, but these are five independent witnesses saying the same thing. So let me ask you this. Supernatural phenomena, I, I think it takes a lot to say that this doesn't happen. I don't know many people who would be confident enough to say, no, no, nothing happens. And if we were to try and dress this in some science, do you ever wonder or do you think it's plausible that some of what people see as far as visions and dreams and these, these coincidences could all fall under sort of, is there any sort of quantum theory or, you know, was it Deepak talks about the quantum spookiness or whatever? Is there, is there anything in science that you think a detractor from this could say, well, it's possible people are attuned to a certain wavelength or when you met her, like you're projecting something, I may be reaching here, but is that, at a, do you ever think that's a credible objection to any? Well, it's like saying, well, I could be a Martian. Uh, and not. I'm, I, and I'm, I'm hiding as a human being. I mean, these are just bizarre. Nobody has a clue about quantum physics, by the way. There are 14 different interpretations of what it means. And they're all consistent with the same empirical data. So I'm, I shy away from grounding my view of reality based on quantum stuff because it's all speculation. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? Because you've mentioned, what are, what are a couple things that um, we we think our knowledge, but actually there may not be proof for that. We like, well, uh, you don't need proof. What you need is enough, enough evidence that, it, that it's adequate to know something. Cause you can know something without being certain you're right. That's true. Uh, so, so, but, but, but yeah, there are all kinds of things, but, but I just want to say that, that no, there's no quantum objection to this. And by, and there is a way that scientists are able to tell the difference between a, a coincidence and something done by an agent. Yeah. And, and that is that if something happens that's a very, very small probability, but there is something about it that makes it special, besides all the other possibilities that could have happened, it was done on purpose. Example, I deal myself a perfect bridge hand on the first deal, and there's a $500 pot, and uh, my deck is high, my uh, collection of cards is very improbable, but so is yours because we both have the same number of cards. But there's nothing special about your hand. It's just some hand or other. But there is something special about my hand, namely, according to independently of the fact I got it, namely, according to the rules of bridge, whoever gets that hand wins. And so it's the combination of my particular combination of cards being highly improbable plus being a kind of something real special uh, compared to the others that indicates that I cheated that this I did that I, I, I cheated I dealt myself the hand now when you take a look at miracle claims uh, a lot of times 
uh, they, they're highly unlikely to have happened. But secondly, they're independently special. For example, they were exactly what a group of people was praying for. Right. And then it happened. And so it's that combination that, that provides beyond reasonable evidence that there was an intelligent agent that brought this about. In this case, it would be God. And this, this, this test has almost no false positives. That is, uh, judgments that this was done by an agent when it really wasn't. Uh, so it, it's a very highly reliable mm. Uh, scientifically based test used in forensic science, linguistics, archaeology, one dirty dig after another, and uh, and and things like that. Um, is you know when it comes like even with prayer, I've I've tried to work this out in my head because I I know many people like yourself who have these stories where the answers are so specific, and if you just if you just went to Occam's Razor and you said, okay, what what's actually more likely here, right? I mean, this is. This is entirely, is it just coincidence or what are the odds of this happening? Um, and I wondered, even with prayer, for example, is this something where I've heard people say you could pray and you're dwelling on something, your mental structure changes in response to the prayer, you start looking for the answers to that, uh, and is there some sort of frequency when you're praying? I think a lot of law of attraction adherents might try and you know, put this forward. And that they're like, oh, that explains your, your prayer. You, you observing something affects it. So when you pray about something, you are in effect changing uh, the reality. Is that incompatible with that? Or is that a plausible way that God could work through science to answer prayer? I think it's utterly implausible. Okay, I, great. <laughs> I, I, do th I do think that there is uh, a legitimate difficulty with uh, selective observation where a person tends to... to notice things that they were expecting, but not notice things that weren't. But I don't find Christians to be that way. I find they're pretty much aware when they don't get their prayers answered. Yeah. And in fact, more of, more of my prayers don't get answered than do. So I, I find the believers that I know are, are, you know, of course, when they're praying for something, they're hoping it will happen. But in terms of expecting it, there's a wide range of Christians. Some do and others just are doing their best to offer, but they don't have any anticipation. And I don't know how in the world that uh, a person's praying could exert some sort of a physical influence on the world that would bring about uh, some something that over which they had no control, like like a person in another part of the country sending exactly that much money so that it arrives at the time just right. after you pray. I don't know how that would work. That's a butterfly effect if I've ever heard of one. So I, I think that that's, that's a speculation. You once threw out, I heard you at a talk give that you had actually worked out roughly that there was actually a percentage of successful prayers that you had kind of allocated. I believe it was somewhere in the teens, you said, or yeah. slightly lower. Is that is that still true, or do you still hold to that? Yeah, I, I would say that that my, any, anywhere from 5 to 20% of my prayers get answered and it, you know, it depends on the year and, <laughs> and how good the football team is. Yeah. And how, but that makes a huge difference. And the chiefs did win the super bowl. Thank, thank and God. And you were interceding. That. I was, I not, I'm not so sure that that had a lot to do with it, but, uh, but, but you know, you never know. I <laughs> can't prove it. So that's right. So given that you've experienced some things, which I mean, having five independent witnesses attest to the same number description, right. I mean, I don't know how someone's going to convince you that's not 
you know, that's not God. Even if, even if someone didn't know that was God or a result of Christian God, that's just an experience you, you can't unknow or disprove. It's pretty hard. So you having experienced these supernatural things, right. does that affect the overall, the journey you've been on with your, your health and the things that you've had to wrestle with? Do you ever struggle with, oh God, I, I've seen these, you've allowed me to witness these incredible testimonies of supernatural occurrences, you know, example, angels, but then, you know, with some of the healings and stuff that I've not received supernatural answers for, do you, do you find, do you have a tough time working out that discrepancy between the two? Well, I wrote a book called Finding Quiet, and it's on my struggle with anxiety. Uh, I was born with genetic predisposition. I've had two nervous breakdowns in my life, one in 2003 for seven months and another in 2013 for five months. And I really decided that I was going to wrestle this thing to the ground and do everything I could to get well. And so I began to work on researching how to, how to get rid of this. And uh, so uh, I, it really, I learned a lot of things that were tremendously helpful. One of the things I address in the book that is, is the hardest problem, I think, for me, if you're going to say, what's your biggest problem with Christianity? Uh, it would be when God seems to be a no-show, when it looks like it would be in his best interests and the best interests of his people if he showed up and did something. But yet he's silent. It's not like he just doesn't answer the prayer. It's like there's nobody home. And uh, I, I've experienced that to the degree of being very, very painful. Uh, and, and, and there, so, but at this stage of my life, I realized that some of the things I prayed for, he couldn't, God can't do. For example, if I pray for someone to get a job, God can't answer that prayer because he can't over, he's not going to override the different employers' free wills. What he can do is influence, try to make a person's resume look good and shine a light on it while they're, but he cannot coerce a, a guy to hire a person. So there are limits as to what God's willing to do to respect free will. And a lot of times I've prayed for things that would require the free action of another human being. And those are things that God can influence, but he can't guarantee them because that would be to violate freedom. The other thing is, uh, I'll tell you, Ryan, I've seen, I've seen enough supernatural stuff. And I don't mean two or three, but I've seen a lot of it that are utterly inexplicable. And they pass this filter that I, I pointed out. Because you're naturally, you don't, and you're not prone to just believe this stuff. Oh, no. I mean, quite the opposite. I right. went into this a bit skeptical. Uh, you know, I just a little bit, uh, I don't know what to make of all this. But I got to the point where it was no longer rational for me to disbelieve it. Do your colleagues ever, uh, do you find most of your colleagues are actually, I know you teach at a Christian university, but. Do your colleagues share this perspective, or are you kind of viewed as the the wild card? Yeah, I know. Actually, more and more of them do, uh, because there has been an outbreak yeah. uh, of miracles since 1970 all over the world. This has been documented by mission organizations and so on. And I, I tell you, things have changed. And so a lot of my colleagues have seen very similar kinds of things. But uh, uh, that that's what. So what's happened to me now? is that I really am at the point where I'm at peace with that uh, when God doesn't uh, apparently show up. Uh, 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 
I don't know if he's doing something behind the scenes that he has a bigger picture in mind, you know, and, uh, and I've seen that we prayed for my son-in-law to get a job, which at that time I wasn't thinking about what that required and, uh, to get out of this job. And he, and there was no answer for two years. He was stuck in this horrible job. Well, then at the end of that time, uh, a, a new job opportunity came his way out of the blue and there were a whole bunch of people competing for it. And the only reason he got it was because he had had two years of experience in this other job, which was what he needed to do the new job. So we now realized it was good that God didn't answer that prayer because that was a necessary condition for him landing this really high paying and good job that was a lot better. So things like that account for your five to 20%. Yeah. Your success ratio. Yeah. So you wrote about in one of your books in Kingdom Triangle, you wrote about an experience where you had the most severe case of laryngitis that you'd ever had. And you were leaving church and you had a full teaching schedule to get to. And it seems like this is a fairly innocuous prayer compared to angels showing up or you know the, the seas parting. But for you, you write about it, it was, it was, it was fairly profound because you hadn't had something like that happen. But you said you had the worst case of laryngitis in your life. Two elders of the church just tracked you down. It wasn't even something you were looking for. You were no, actually leaving the church. I was church. getting out of there. Yeah, so you actually weren't even looking for it. And then they laid hands on you. You felt a sensation, a burning, a, a physical manifestation of what was happening. And your laryngitis completely, yeah. dis completely disappeared. So I wanted to ask, we hear about those stories, and it seems like in a lot of the, the faith healing circles that you hear about backs feeling better, you know, maybe laryngitis would fall under that, or uh, a headache disappearing. But, you know, detractors will say, well, show me the, you know, the, the cancer tumors disappearing, which I know there are documented cases in a lot of literature, but you personally having experienced three different bouts of cancer and all sorts of medical illnesses, and yet you had laryngitis healed, when you were praying for your cancer, I, I, I can't help but wonder, did you go, God, how come laryngitis taking care of like that? And to a creator of the universe, these are, you know, basically the same things, right? They don't, it doesn't require any more effort on his part. So I admit that it was confusing, but I was actually not too worried about the cancer at the time. But you're right. Uh, sometimes God heals and sometimes he doesn't. And it's really confusing. My point is I've seen enough of it to know that he does in fact heal and he's there, he's real, but I don't get everything. And uh, he's so. got to chalk it up to my ways are not your ways. And well, I don't know what else to do. I am pretty finite and I do think God's a little smarter than I am. I mean, you know, so I have to grant that. Uh, so that that's kind of where I'm at. So I want to get to, this probably comes up as one of, aside from the supernatural, the single biggest objection that seems to get brought up with Christianity is science, evolution, and the fact that somehow faith and uh, science are inco completely incompatible with each other. So uh, talk to me about, you You are not a proponent of the current evolutionary theory. Uh, That's so, right. So talk to me a little bit how you've arrived at that position, and then what are some of the major flaws that you see with the the current uh, evolutionary consensus by biologists and anthropologists on this? Well, now, by evolution, I, I, I mean, first of all, the blind watchmaker thesis, which is the idea that, that first life originated by purely naturalistic processes, the laws of nature and random chance, and uh, the development of life was done by purely natural processes. The second meaning could be 
the thesis of common descent, that you can trace the tree of life back to an original uh, first life or a small group of first life. Uh, my, my primary beef is with the, the uh, blind watchmaker thesis uh, because I don't, think it's, I don't think it's reasonable. I don't think it makes any sense. And uh, the, the interesting thing is more and more scientists are beginning to abandon uh, a Darwin, uh, a standard Darwinist explanation. There, there are a lot of problems with it, but one of them is the, the utter impossibility of getting a, a, a living thing uh, through uh, uh, law and, and, and random chance. Um, we, we now know uh, that uh, if the universe is about 16 billion years old, we can calculate how many picoseconds? A picosecond is 10 to the minus 12th second because a picosecond is basically a measure of how much time it takes to rotate a molecular bond. So we can calculate the number of subatomic tiny events that have happened in the history of the universe. Wow. We can also calculate out of, out of all the different possible combinations of the constituents of, a say, a simple cell, um, the probabilities of one of them occurring given all the other possibilities that could have happened. And when you factor in the time for this to take place and how, how the, the odds, the chances of this happening are something equivalent to filling the state of Texas with quarters a mile deep, marking one with an X, throwing it somewhere in Texas and, and I flying it helicopter going down and picking it on the first draw. It's ridiculous. Wow. And the same thing is actually true for the development of life. It requires information the, uh, in order for mutations to be directed in a positive way. The problem is information, according to most scientists and, and philosophers, is not physical. It's, 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 it's some sort of an immaterial, it's like instructions of some kind. Mm. And if you don't have information, there's no way for these mutations to be guided. And it becomes an, uh, what's called a random search. It's just kind of this random search. And then you have the probability problem again. The only way to overcome it is if there is a, a tell us or goal that these, these mutations are moving toward and targeting. The problem is that that requires there to be information at the very beginning. And, and where do you get non-physical information from matter? That's getting something from nothing. Yeah. Uh, and, and there are other problems, like the origin of consciousness is, again, impossible to explain by evolution. Impossible. It's not because it's, we don't know it now, but it's the wrong kind of explanation mm. because you're getting something from nothing. Matter doesn't contain conscious potentialities matter is the way physics and chemistry describe it and and to how you could just rearrange matter to a point where it's complex and then pop consciousness comes into existence is very hard so i think so i think that if uh three conditions are met it it is justifiable to go against the majority opinion in a discipline like the biologist number one if I can explain why that field all ha agrees on the same view in, uh, in a non-rational way, then their, their agreement isn't because of the evidence. For example, in evolution, I can explain that because of a desire to get theology out of science 
and and the way that scientists are sociologized into the practice of the discipline uh, that they have to, to to promote this theory or they don't or they're ostracized. Now I have evidence that uh, from the one of the world's top historians of the Darwinian era at Georgia State University, not a Christian, but he said the reason Darwin won was not empirical because the creationists had better empirical predictions than Darwin did for cent for decades and decades. They won because they were able to get the theologians out of the out of the biologists' uh, laboratory. Um, uh, the second condition is uh, so I can explain why evolution is uh, accepted by the vast majority without having to appeal to the evidence or rational factors. I can give sociological explanations for it. Secondly, if there is a highly trained and highly skilled rebel group, like Thomas Kuhn called it, a group that does not buy into the major paradigm and is offering an alternative explanation that the vast majority of scientists don't agree with, that is how scientific revolutions take place, because at some point, if the major theory is not doing everything it's supposed to do, then a small rebel group has got to come up and offer an alternative. And what happens to them is they're ostracized. They're called practicing pseudoscience uh, and uh, by the majority of the field. This is a Thomas Kuhn structure, scientific revolutions. But eventually they went out. And what we have in intelligent design is a, is a significant number of highly trained PhDs that are major, they publish in secular journals and so on. So if they're there, then I say to myself, well, then there must be a plausible alternative or, all, or else all these guys are lying. So there is a, so one, there is a consensus, right? Yes. Uh, so the, the consensus is, which is a 95% yeah. of believe that evolution explains yes. the, dark, the blind yes. watchmaker theory. Yes. And so there is, but you're saying there there is also a bigger dissent than people realize. Much bigger dissent. And I can explain why they agree, apart from the fact that their theory is the best explanation of the evidence. Okay. So. And so how do you then, taking all this, where do you stand with the book of Genesis and the, the narrative of how, how do you reconcile, you know, stars uh, came after trees and the, and the Genesis narrative? Well, I'm not an expert on that area, uh, so I'm not, I'm not probably the best one to ask, but I'll give you just my quick view. I do believe that the early chapters of Genesis are giving us history uh, of events that really happened. On the other hand, I do think that there are times in the ancient world where history uh, went from a chronological narrative to a topical narrative and it was still recounting events but it was doing so topically not chronologically and i think that the early chapters of genesis are a combination of chronology but topical treatment because it starts off by saying that world is was formless and empty and day one two and three structure is given to address the formlessness and four five and six the structures are are filled with Creatures so that the emptiness is addressed. So it's clear that that is that that problem is is kind of guiding um, the selection of things that really happened. And uh, so I and I do believe that there was that the science is consistent with an original pair, Adam and Eve. It does not rule that out. Uh, the problem that we have is in the age issue. Now I happen to be an old Earth creationist. 
But the, Which, but, can you define that for Yeah, that, what I mean is I think that God created the various different kinds of life by doing something, uh, and, but, but that his acts of creation were interspersed throughout millions of years. I think the universe is 16 billion years old and the earth is 4 billion uh, and so on. And so I and don't... that's the scientific consensus right now. Well, and I think the Bible allows for that. Okay. If it didn't, I'd have a problem with it. But okay. I think that Old Testament scholars that are reliable and trustworthy are di differ on that question. So we've got a legitimate group that don't take the days to be literal 24-hour days. And so uh, the main problem for me at this point is that I think that science is dating the original pair of human beings, those who hold to that, uh, maybe 500,000, 200 to 500,000 years ago. And I'm not, I'm not willing to stretch Adam and Eve that far back. Uh, so that's an issue I have not resolved. And, uh, but, but any theory has problems. Yeah. And so I, I, we don't have all, I don't have all the answers on this, but it doesn't mean there isn't a solid basis for holding these things to be historically correct with some topical development. So you do you do believe that evolution happens at a micro level? I mean, because with our within a chain, yeah, within limits, because absolutely. With the scientific record, we do have fossils of various species that can show progressions, et cetera. So that when people say that Christians deny evolution, they're actually probably talking more about they deny the ultimate cause of what's happening, right? Because no one really disputes that creatures do adapt and change, and right. sometimes and will veer off and form completely divergent new species? Well, that's a, that's a very interesting question. I, I would just say that there are really limits to the change that can take place. And we now know why, because the information uh, in a living organism of a certain kind sets limits for what kind of change it can undergo without breaking down the information. Right. Uh, but, but I would also say that um, creationists predicted that there would be no transition species in the fossil record. Darwin predicted that there would be hundreds of thousands of them. Well, it's turned out that he was wrong, and there is a handful of transition forms that are disputable by other scientists. So I, I, I don't know if there were transition, if there are in the fossil record or not. I just know there aren't many of them, mm -hmm. and the ones that are identified as transition forms from one type of organism to another can can be have been challenged by other non-christian scientists so i don't know what to make of the transition forms but they sure aren't like what darwin said they're more like what the creationists said gotcha okay and so would you say is the consensus then i mean obviously lots of brilliant people subscribe to the the blind watchman and we wouldn't say that it's just because everyone's indoctrinated but no. would you argue that that consensus is rooted in the fact that if you don't come at this from a faith background, the the supernatural causation is just not an option, and so that's why we land. Well, it's on that. the only game in town. You right. got to make it work, right? As Al Planning has said, the only other alternative is organisms popped into existence out of nothing, fully formed, and and that's, that's not going to work. A, that, that's that's pretty tough to swallow. So, that is yeah. tough to swallow. Okay. Um, and by by the way, remember if 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 the blind watchmaker thesis turns out to be true. The only thing that demonstrates is that the early chapters of Genesis are not entirely historical, but it's got some legendary features in it. Now, I don't hold that, 
But if it turned out to be true, that has nothing to do with whether Christianity is true, because there's still a case to be made that there's a God and the New Testament documents are historically reliable. So evolution's, the blind watchmaker thesis is truth, only counts against a completely inerrantist view of the Bible, or at least a, a, a a historical way of understanding the early chapters of Genesis. That's all that would be at stake. So it's not worth, It's that's not the hill to have no. the faith in Christianity die on. Oh, well, no. I mean, I would, be, if that turned out to be true, I would have to readjust my understanding of those early chapters. But what's that got to do with whether Jesus lived and rose from the dead or whether there was a cause for the beginning of the universe? I don't get it. If we found life, and I'll say life as in both types, if we found single cell organisms on Mars. Yes. And if we found intelligent life elsewhere, yes. would that mess up your theology? In fact, it would confirm it uh, because really? um, okay. two well-known scientists, Barrow and Tipler, uh, non-believers, wrote about a thousand-page book with Oxford Press called The Cosmological Anthropic Principle. They said that the chances of life occurring one time in the universe, once, is what, well, like I told you, like the state of Texas being filled with quarters a mile deep and putting one in. It said it's 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 right. so impossible that it would could never happen. But it it's in some odd way it did. Now you're going to ask me to believe it happened a second time? Interesting. They said the science is just didn't even make sense of it happening once. Now, if you're going to tell me that somewhere in the universe it happened a second time, impossible because we know how much matters in the universe mm. uh, because of the gravitational force and we can calculate the length of time and all that and it's there's just not <laughs> it's like having two quarters that you toss in the state of texas that have an x on them and you pick them both on the first two draws that that's even why so if there were life that would indicate to me that it's beyond any reasonable doubt that there's a god Interesting. Okay. That's, that's, I haven't heard that one before. That's interesting. And then real quick, I have to ask too, just because I always get asked this, uh, dinosaurs, just fascinating, not sure what to make of it, or just part of the, you know, or any unique take on, you know, why God allows us to find these crazy skeletons of yeah. these monsters. Well, uh, I, since I hold to an old earth, an old universe, then I think that there were all kinds of organisms that were created that died and went extinct. Uh, and uh, I think, why? I think God uh, subjected the, the world to decay because it's a fallen world. And then what happened was a combination of life and death, and, and uh, he, he let this play out uh, in, in that way. And so um, the dinosaurs were creatures that are very interesting. He created them. Uh, there may have been processes he used, but he had to do something to bring about the new information required to direct their to form their bodies, but uh, they 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 got allowed the, the 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 fallenness of the world to cause them to go extinct. So they don't they're they have I don't even know that they have no relevance to me. Well, now, have if you I seen Jurassic younger, Park? Well, I mean. now there you go, and they're still around. So <laughs> uh, yeah, if I were a young Earth creationist that believed that the world was created in six literal days, maybe twenty thousand years ago or so. That would be a bit of a problem for me. Yeah. Okay. Um, an increasingly popular view that I have noticed among specifically some of my friends in Silicon Valley and sort of uh, who also adhere somewhat to the new atheists as well, I, I find interesting that both come along, is the idea that we're actually just living in a simulation. 
which one of my friends commented said that actually Christianity doesn't bother him as much anymore since adopting the simulation view because he thinks that we're just agents that have been programmed into a, an existence by a larger, more powerful creation uh, being, aka aliens. And I said, well, you know, that's not structurally potentially right. Too different than if we were if if life itself is a is a testing ground for our faith, et cetera. Do you, what do you think about the All idea right. of a simulation? Is the view that everything is a simulation or just the world we live in, but there was something outside of it that created the simulation? Yeah, like we're all living in essentially a game that's like with, you know, kind of pawns in a game that yeah. we wouldn't know, you know, that we wouldn't know if we're in it or not in it. Okay, well. Like uh, the Matrix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if we if we don't know whether we're in it or not in it, I mean, can you give me a reason for why you think this? I mean, yeah. I don't. I, I, in other words, people can can make all, any assertion they want, but my question is always: Well, can you g give me evidence to show that this is more reasonable to believe than to believe that we're not in a simulation? And uh, I, I, the mere possibility that we could be is not enough for me to think it's reasonable to think we are. So I don't. I don't think there's any reason to believe this. And so, and even with consciousness, right? I mean. Is there an actual way to prove right now that I am or I think I am, you know, as far as I can use my senses, but how does one actually, can you prove consciousness uh, individually? Yeah, 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 asked it a different way. Yeah, I'm trying to think because I, I have heard it said that it's tough to, you can't actually prove that like what I'm experiencing is the same as, uh, you know, if we're both looking at something and experiencing it, oh, it's like, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. I, we can both agree Right. Like colors would be a good example, right? right? right like right, right. you and I both say this book is white, but I have no way of proving actually that what you see as white is what I see as white. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah, that's evidence. That's evidence for that consciousness is not physical. Uh, and here's why, because um, physical things are publicly accessible to all of us. I mean, take a table. If I want to know how long it is or how much it weighs, I have to measure it and do certain things. But you could do the same thing. Uh, what, anything going on in my brain at any moment is publicly accessible to anybody who could set up the right instruments and measure the electrical activity, the oxygen flow, and all that. So uh, whenever we study any, ob any physical object, we study it from a third-person point of view, and everybody has equal access to it. Consciousness is something I have private access to. I have a way of knowing it that is not available to anybody else. Uh, and namely, uh, I, I, I can be aware of it from first-person introspection. So the truth of the matter is that the only way you can know what my conscious states are is by watching my body language and my verbal reports and assuming that there is a, an analogy between the two of us. So if you get stuck with a pin and you grimace and shout out, you're aware that there's a pain that occurs between those. You see me get stuck with a pin and I shout out, and you say, well, you know, we're awfully analogous in a lot of ways. I, I, would, I think it's more reasonable to think that probably a pain that's very similar to mine is occurring between the, the sticking and the shouting of ouch. Am I, am I certain of that? No. And see, that's what's interesting, because it may very well be that you are seeing white objects as blue, but you use the word white for them. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing white objects as white, and I use the word white for them. But we're having different color experiences. That's entirely possible. And what that, the possibility of that is, is enough to show 
that my conscious states, my experiences and sensations of color aren't publicly accessible like physical states are. So they are not physical states. Instead, they're mental states. So this is a, another argument for the irreducible uh, mental nature, immateriality of my conscious states. Interesting. Yeah, I guess that gets brought up a lot too, because something that's often thrown out is, how do you know you're not a brain in a vat? Uh, yeah. You know, and right. I go, I, I don't know if I ever, you can't prove that, right? Well, no, but I mean, this is the question becomes, uh, who has the burden of proof on that? Mm. And my view is, uh, how do I know? I just do. I just do know I'm not a brain in a vet. What would make you think I am? Yeah. Well, you might be. Well, I don't believe things because they might be true. That's right. I believe them because there's reason to think they're true. Can you give me a reason to think I'm a brain in a vat? Yeah. So the near suggestion that I could be, good grief, that's not enough for me to believe something. For the record, I do not believe that I or you are brains in a vat. Well, I don't even believe you have a brain. But that's, right. but that's a whole nother issue. Well, that is that, that is another issue, which we don't have time to actually get, no. to, uh, get to today. So going back to some of these objections to Christianity, do you ever wonder, well, I want to get into suffering and, and, and the, the experience. The other big one for most people is, is, is the presence of suffering, natural disasters, just the presence of evil. Now, I think most people have read up that to call something evil is to acknowledge that there is something is good. And so the presence of good would you know, mean that there is evil. But I think another way I want to address the question is, do you ever wrestle with why God made a made this story for us uh, in a way that where we have to go through suffering to to learn and to grow, that we have to experience these hardships? Because if he is who he is, he could have made a system where this isn't necessary, right? There is no... Satan and fallen angels and death and, and, and destruction. And so that seems to be a huge obstacle for a lot of people. Good, a good question. Uh, I think, first of all, I'll, I'll just say two things quickly. First of all, it's not clear that he could have created a world where this wasn't a part of it. Because once he chose to create beings that had free will, then what happened from that point on is not up to him. So um, whether, that, whether a world that was not fallen could come about or not, wasn't up to God, it was up to us. So God, if he chose to create enough beings with, with, with freedom, uh, it's up to us then what happens, not up to him. Even if he foreknew it was going to happen, that doesn't mean that he wanted it or caused it. It does mean that there would have to be some overriding reason for him to permit it. But, but, but he would have much rather the world had been a place where there was never anything like this. But that was up to us, not him. Now, the overriding reason was that this is a world where people can love and, and because we have a choice. You can't coerce love. And all the aspects that make life rich and wonderful uh, presuppose that we have a choice to be creative or to show kindness and so on to each other. But in a world with no freedom, those things are not possible. So I think that, uh, uh, so it may very well be that God could not have created a world uh, where there was no fallenness that, that we could have, but that was not, God delegated that decision to us and it was a good thing he did. Now, um, in terms of uh, the, the d disasters and tsunamis and things like that, this is a, this is a difficulty. I, I, I get that. But, but I, what I will say 
is that if if I had a cure for cancer, and I in uh, in order for it to work, uh, uh, the person with cancer would have to voluntarily take the medicine that I was offering because if he, he if he was forced to take it, his immune system wouldn't cooperate. All right, so um, what I would need to do would be to tell you that you have cancer. And I, and I would need to, to, to alert you to that fact. Uh, if I, if I, so that you'd be open to receiving the, the medication in a non-coercive way. So what, what I would, it would be wrong of me to, to put you in an environment where you were dying inside, but you felt nothing and everything looked perfect outside. So there would be nothing in you that would be the slightest bit of motivation for you to want to get help. And I think the same thing, if God, uh, if people actually fell against God's moral law, for him to not subject the world to any disintegration in a way that, that cried out that something's wrong here, this, there's something wrong with this world, and we, you need to begin looking for what that is, but if it was just a perfect environment with nothing wrong, then people could be lulled into sleep into thinking they were okay. And I think that's risky stuff. Now, so what I think happened is, as C.S. Lewis said, that these are signs or shoutings that, that this, is, this place is fragmented and fallen and wrong. It's not our home and someplace else is, and we ought to search. I agree with you, though, that there, that, in any given case, I don't know why that happened. I can't explain why the tsunami happened at that point then. That's just a tragedy. Yeah. But is it... So one thing that I've always struggled with is the insanely high relative to today infant mortality rate. So if, if life is so precious because, according to the Bible, it's the time that you can actually demonstrate faith and... Uh, and actually, you know, the whole point of free will is that you can actually choose to to love God and to know Him and to have that relationship that Christianity teaches. Uh, then, if so many people over throughout history, and I'll say it's 20, 30 percent throughout history for infant mortality, never even got a shot, never again. How how important is life right now? And we say it's fragmented, and we say it's temporary, but obviously, life is important because right, this is where God allows His created beings to come out and and exercise faith. So do you have any thoughts on that? Or Yeah, it's a good question. I have two thoughts. The first is that there will not be a single child that dies in the womb or that dies uh, at birth that God will not make it up to them. And, and he will make it up to them uh, in the next life so that they will say, they will be honestly able to say it was worth it that I was brought into existence. So I, I have confidence that for those people, God is going to make it up to them. Uh, the other thing I would say would be that God has created a world where uh, our actions uh, can affect one another. And I like that because I can have a positive effect on people. But what goes along with that is that the things I do or fail to do can also hurt somebody. Now, I think a lot of infant mortality has been due to people making bad choices um, drinking while they're pregnant, uh, things of that sort, or not knowingly taking thalidomide 
Uh, but but that was something that, that ended up hurting hurting the fetus. But God allows us to explore and learn from our failures, and I recognize that that sometimes impacts other people. But then this is a world where God wanted human beings to be able to have influence on one another. And what goes along with that, I think, is that we might have a negative influence. So yeah. that's you, the best I can do on that. Yeah, It's hard. Do you ever wonder why God told his story in a book thousands that's assembled over thousands of years in a language that is foreign to most of the planet and requires so much I, I'm always amazed at the amount of when I open up a commentary and I try and study the Old Testament that if I didn't have the companion guide, I feel like I would miss out on 95% of some of the the hidden messages and the truth there. But it seems like if God is about relationship with which most I, I talk about pastors, that seems to be if a, a being was omnipresent, all knowing, all powerful, all good. The only reason he created us was for more fellowship and relationship. Why does it seem to be so tough you know, to find him and he's, and he's assembled in this, what is a peculiar book? You know, I've, I've been reading Ezekiel lately and it's, it's bizarre. Yeah. Uh, and you know, it seems like, why did he, why did he do it that way? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, first of all, remember that, uh, uh life in this world is a small slice of, of how long we're going to live. So the vast majority of the time we'll be alive is going to be in direct communication with God. So admittedly, this is a setup that we have, and whatever problems there are with it are at least temporary, short-term, compared to the long-haul view. The second thing I would say would be that this was the best way to communicate available. I mean, uh, so, so what, what were the alternatives? Well, God could just speak and prophetically or or give people visions and dreams. The problem with that is that it would be very difficult for us to believe somebody could be lying about it. There'd be all kinds of problems with that. There'd be no standardization. Well, that, that would be right. But by putting something in, in writing, you have a stable authority that can be translated into other languages. And it says basically the same thing to everybody. And it can't be changed altered now you can misinterpret it and all that sort of thing i agree at some point god has to let human finiteness enter the picture and that allows for a mistake but this was the best in my opinion the best way to do it to provide a stabilized rule of 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 what's real and so on for everybody yeah uh, but then i also believe he does speak to us individually i think the other thing i would say would be that uh, the, the, it's so interesting, but the, but the books that we find odd, people in Africa and in Asia find to be the most exciting. I mean, mm. so it kind of all depends on your cultural background as to what stands out to you. And it's amazing that missionaries tell us that certain portions of scripture that Westerners kind of think, well, what in the world's that in there for? This just lights people's fire in other parts of the world. So, I mean, <laughs> I think it was pretty tough to come up with an authoritative book that would speak to all these different cultures. And we're talking about it today, so I, I do wonder, as a marketer, would I be unhappy with the results I got from the bestseller? Still talked about a lot of fighting over it, uh, so it's relevant. Uh, relevant Something's going on. Uh, I want to. Well, actually, I do want to ask. So, do you view the Bible? And I know this is kind of a loaded question, but is the does the Bible have errors in it, or is are all those things are discrepancies totally explainable in your view? Um, I believe that the original, uh, when we're assured that we have the original text, 
And not the original Codex. Right. I mean, those those were destroyed. Oh, you don't have that in your office? Right? No, I've thought about it. And I wanted to tell <laughs> eBay, people eBay, you I could did. get a fortune for that. I could, and I, char I charge neighbors 15 bucks to come in and look at it. I mean, I'll tell you what. And you could tithe off that, I hope. I, well, you know, that's another question. But uh, <laughs> but uh, a buck 50. You okay. know, that's not too much. <laughs> yeah, but I think that uh, um, the, the it, when we have reason to think that we have uh landed on the best candidate for the original writing and these others are variants that happened later suppose we have reason for that then i think properly interpreted whatever the bible teaches is true is true i do think that now you see well what the, it doesn't mean we've got a good explanation for every problem passage but look you know people misunderstand how hypotheses and theories are assessed in the light of anomalies. I'll give you an example. Uh, there used to be a theory uh, in organic chemistry called dehalohydrogenation. Now, it was a particular theory about a certain kind of chemical reaction, and the theory said that, that when you put these two kinds of chemicals together, the reaction will always go in a certain direction. Well, there was one group of these that went in the wrong direction. And so those scientists spent, I think it was 75 years, engaging in ad hoc harmonizations, trying to figure out a way to harmonize. Maybe the instrumentation wasn't right or, you know. The, the fact of the matter is that they did not have a good explanation for it. But they had so much reason to believe the theory was true that the, the support for the theory outweighed the strength of this being a real contradiction to the theory. So they were justified in holding to the theory, even though they had bad explanations or no explanation at all for, the, for this uh, contradiction by calling it an alleged contradiction, not a real one. And they were reasonable in doing that because they had uh, so much reason to believe the theory that, that a handful of anomalies did not rise to the level of overturning the evidence for the theory in general. Now, eventually, they found out something else was going on with that, and it put it in a different category. It would be like discovering that wasn't a part of the original text, so we don't have to worry about what it says. So my view is that we've got evidence that the scriptures are true based on the resurrection of Jesus, their historicity, prophecy that took place. I hope, but suppose we've got a case that Jesus uh, actually felt held the scriptures were inerrant, and, and, and based on a historical reading of these texts, not that they're inspired or anything. And then we end up saying, well, I'm going to believe the Bible is inspired because Jesus did, and I think he rose from the dead and was highly likely to be the Son of God. That means then that I've got a foundation for believing that, that this will turn out to be true in the long run, even though there are a bunch of problem passages that I don't, I think my ex, my way of dealing with them probably isn't very reasonable if you just look at it in isolation, but you shouldn't do that. You ought to weigh the cost benefits of the, counting this as a real contradiction, which would then make you have to give up all the reasons you have for holding it to begin with, uh, versus uh, accepting a, a harmonization that in its own doesn't look very reasonable. Do most secular scholars agree that the Bible, we have a we we have a really good idea of what's supposed to be in there, and that there's a there's really not much debate anymore, too, right? That Jesus was real, 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody, nobody does. Because I know there was the Jesus seminar, and there was like some that he was. You know, there's some more fringe scholarship, but yeah. the, but even the secular consensus yeah. today is that Jesus is real. We have a very good idea, and the guys who wrote down in these gospels, they believed they or they they wrote down what they believed they saw, and and we have accurate writings of that yeah this would be except for the miracles right. i mean uh that's where that's the whole controversy with the is. bible right craig keener debated uh who's an evangelical scholar debated a new testament scholar at oxford and the new testament scholar who was a skeptic said to keener hey said listen nobody would doubt denies that the new testament documents pass all the tests of historicity there's just one problem they got miracles in them and uh so i mean you know that's that that's a that's a no non-starter for me and, and Keener, you know, said, well, maybe you ought to hang around with other people, you know, <laughs> because they see, and he has that two do volume tone documenting that miracles are happening. So it's the miracle problem. It isn't the historicity itself, but that yeah. trumps, uh, you know, well, we just, I've never seen one of these things happen. So once again, it comes back to, uh, to miracles. Um, you mentioned uh, free will a couple times. I want to ask about a question that a lot of young folks, including myself, have obsessed with, which is, you said your actions can influence someone else. Can you miss out on God's plan or calling for your life? And not only from your own actions, but can someone else's actions interfere with God's calling plan for your life? Yes, I believe they can. Uh, so, it, uh, so suppose that God... Um, God's purpose for me was to become a professional athlete and to use my standing as a, a, a platform to influence people. But suppose that I'm in high school and uh, some guy who doesn't like me very much uh, gets a group of guys and they break my legs and uh, they don't heal up uh, to the degree that I could become a professional athlete. Well, then they have thwarted my what God really wanted for me to do but the good news is that I think God has plan B's that are really good and so are they the best no but they're but they're good enough for me to look back and say you know what that was worth it so the good we, it doesn't go from plan A to oh brother I got a lousy life it goes from plan A to hey plan B it's really good it wasn't quite what plan A was but the price that I paid for being in a world where I can have relationships is that sometimes people can. I mean, it says in Luke that the Pharisees resisted the boule of God, the will of God. God had a will for certain things and they resisted it. Now, I mean, that thwarted God, that thwarted God's plan. I don't know what else, how else to understand that. And a skept and it's a fair objection, though, to come back and say, well, why didn't God protect an individual in that plan if he desired that and he could interfere uh we and and i guess that's what probably has bothered me the most throughout uh, my journey of wrestling with this stuff is that like you mentioned earlier a desperate attempt to find a logical pattern that i can point to and say god will always intervene on my behalf in xyz scenario but there's just numerous times where even like why did he come through and protect me i you know i had a couple uh, near misses and, you know, car crashes over the years where I just, I mean, dodged at the last second. And then, you know, last week I had a, a very good friend's 25-year-old uh, 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 brother get run over by a car. And you go, right. God, like, and why would you, 
why did you allow that? You could have, that was not the, that was probably not the intent. That was probably not plan A, right? I mean, so what is, and is this just, again, chalking up to the ultimately going back to, I don't know, and God, your ways are higher than my ways? Well, yeah, yes, with a little bit of a clarification of that. But I think that questions like that are very, very hard. I, they're very hard. And uh, I, I, I do get it. Uh, the, 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 the emotional kind of just, what is this? Um, I do think that um, it, it, this might be helpful. Suppose that God um, uh, lets something happen to you uh, that surely would have been, he could have thwarted. Uh, why? Was that really good, good or not? Well, how, how, what do I need to know to answer that question? Well, I, first of all, I have to know kind of the long-term positive and negative results of God letting this happen over the long haul in my life and others, okay? Then I need to compare that with the long haul positive and negative results of God not letting it happen, which is not reality. How could I have the information needed to make that comparison? I just don't have, I don't know what the long-term implications, good or bad, of, that will take place until I die of God letting me have cancer. I don't know what the positive and negative results would have been if he would have thwarted that and then compare them. That's what I'd need to know to make a reasonable judgment as to why God would let this happen. But I don't know how in the world I would even begin to access that kind of information. So just because you can't think of a plausible reason for why God, in your finiteness, allowed something to happen doesn't mean that there isn't one. And as long as there is at least one plausible reason why God could have, then it's consistent with it is. his character. It is. And we're, we're, we're entitled to, to, to think that way, because in my opinion, we have a lot of good reasons to think there, was a, there is a creator. And uh, there's a whole, and I suppose we add all that up, and plus the miracles that people have seen, and, and I, you know, those don't mean, you know, why, why this didn't. But if you add all that up, then I think we're justified in saying, that, you know, I, I, this is this is true, and I don't get this. I don't know how that harmonizes, but I don't have enough reason to think all this is hogwash just because I can't explain this part of life, although it's, although it's troubling to me. Yeah, and you have, and this is a good transition, I, I want to finish by going into your journey with Finding Quiet. Um, you have gone through a lot health-wise, and uh, can you share a little bit about uh, what you shared as far as the belief of why God has permitted you to kind of go through some of the the extreme anxiety and the yes. and the mental breakdown that you've gone through and, and the resulting right. book I, that came out of it. Well, I did write this book, Finding Quiet, uh, to try to explain what happened to me and what I've learned from it. Uh, what I will say is that in my own life, slowing down and adjusting my daily practices in order to become emotionally and psychologically healthy has been transformative to me. And I am far less busy, and I have certain practices that I have put into place that I do daily that have been so endearing to my heart 
toward God and other people. People have noticed a change in me. Uh, that that I'm, I'm I just treasure that. Uh, I would not want to go back and have this happen again. But I will tell you that there's an awful lot that I'm grateful for that I experience every day that is a result of having to work through that and learn and be motivated to do new things that have been wor worth it, to be honest with you. The other thing I would say is that, and I, I don't know how else to put this, but this has opened up for me an area of, of caring and helping others that just I, I did not know was available. Because I, I, I have talked to and lectured to so many people who have come up and said, I know you get it. Because I'm not just a guy talking to them about stuff that might help them. I have been in their shoes and they understand that I've been there. And so when I give them things that have helped me, it affects them very deeply. Now, I'm glad for those, although I will tell you, I didn't like the experiences and I don't want to have it again. And these came out of nowhere, right? Essentially, like you you mentioned you like woke up one morning, right? And oh, suddenly a, found yourself unable to teach. Unable it was instantaneous, to... yeah. Although there was a year of stress. It was a horrible year. And I had a bunch of things happen to my family and me. It was a nightmare of a year, but I held on. But the day after the day school was out, boom, immediately, I just was, I just fell on my face. I was knocked out. So yeah, uh, I think it was building up, but I wasn't aware of it until I, I, I could let go. And then, boy, I got sideswiped. <laughs> what have you, so, I mean, with everything going on in the world right now, I mean, this is a 2020, you got to tip your cap to it. It's uh exceeded in the worst way all our expectations right yes. with this pandemic it's been a tough year um what uh what things have you found the most fruitful for you as far as calming anxiety and really finding peace in your life the number one thing i'd want to say to people about anxiety is that it is largely a learned habit it's not entirely a learned habit it can have brain chemistry problems and so on. But it's largely something that you learn. You learn to worry. You learn to practice very negative self-talk. You learn to say, well, gosh, what if this happens? And catastrophize, oh, I've got to make sure that doesn't happen. You, so we learn these things. The good news is that by forming new habits, you can unlearn them and replace them with being half full instead of half empty. Uh, not living in the future. I, I, You're not going to believe this, but I mean, my wife will tell you, she asked me, what do you got going next week? And I tell her, I have no idea. Hmm. And it's been about five years since I've made this turn. But I live in the present now. I do not live in the future. And I spent my whole life living in the future, uh, worrying about what would happen. I really did. I spent 65 years or so. But I don't anymore because I formed the habit of learning how to turn away from that when I started going there. So eventually I replace the grooves with new grooves that trigger new habits. And that, I've got how to do that in the book. But so I would say to people, practicing certain things like expressing gratitude at various times during the day, and there are three or four others I mentioned, if you'll work at forming new habits, you're going to be lousy at it the first two or three months, like learning tennis or 
learning another language or whatever. So it's not going to work. It won't help you. And you'll think I'm not making any progress. Well, that's just the way it is learning anything. You'll stick with it and do and practice these practices uh, for it'll take you anywhere from two months to about four months. And you will now you will form a new habit and then it will be no effort for you any longer. It'll be part of your very nature. You'll you'll trigger not going to the future and worrying uh, because that's built into your muscle memory and your brain memory and all that. So that was that that would be what I would say is to begin to to realize that you can change this but not on the spur of the moment. What you have to do is begin to adopt certain practices that are helpful in this area and I list them there and that's why people have been benefited but be patient because in the early stages of learning these new habits, you're going to be really bad at it. Hang in there. You'll eventually change. Interesting. So is have you found a lot of the, the formative habits, are they rooted in, in biblical practices? Have you found, is there, I've always been interested in a lot of your work is centered on um, some actual physical disciplines that are interwoven with spiritual truths. Um, you mentioned, for example, uh, in Kingdom Triangle, um, with your heart, uh, your heart having uh, almost brain cells in it, if you will, and learning to become present and aware and yes. to tap into that. So, have you have you found some fruit and some some, some gems with that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, what is very interesting to me, uh, Ryan, is the is that uh, psychology and neuroscience are discovering that the things the scriptures taught are true. For ex- I'll give you an example. The most important thing a person can do, even more than having hope in life and, and having a positive attitude, is the daily practice of expressing gratitude. Believe it or not, studies have shown that that is, for mental health, that trumps almost everything else. Mm. Well, I mean... In a biblical view of the world, well, guess what? Part of part of what we're here to do is to express gratitude. Now, if you're an atheist, there's, there, you know, I could express gratitude to you for getting me coffee or whatever, but you can't have gratitude for a sunset over Maui. You could like it, you could be happy about it, but you can't express gratitude for it because there's nobody to be grateful to. Mm. We were made to function best when we're expressing gratitude. Well, isn't that odd? So I think that fits into it. That's a psychological discovery. It's part of what's called positive psychology. And it's, and it's, they've also discovered that your neurons and your brain connections are chain. Your brain structures change it's called neuroplasticity by doing gratitude. So your brain and your psyche were actually made to do that. So, you know, but the scriptures say, you know, express gratitude all the time, you know. Well, gee, guess what? It actually works. So grace to you and thanks be to God. You know, it's kind of built in, I guess, Well, right? it ain't bad. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, we got some birds out there, don't we? Yes. We do. Awesome. Oh, man, they're just coming to sing and song there. Uh, last couple questions here. Uh, how long have you been married, JP? I've been married since 1977. So that would be 20, 43 years. 43 years. What wisdom do you have for anybody of any background? Uh, We'll be ecumenical on this uh, for a successful marriage and relationship. I think, I think the number one, well, they're one of the most important things to do 
is to be slow to speak and and quick to listen because when hope and i start heading down the path of an argument um i i find it's a natural tendency for for me to want to be heard and to make my points that communicates to her that i'm not interested in hearing her points and listening and uh, I found that it just works a lot better if I make my fundamental goal is making sure she feels heard and she uh, uh, understands that I get what she's saying and that I can, in the parts I can honestly affirm, I do. If the parts I can't affirm, I, I would still assure her that I'm, I hear you and um, I, I have a little different take on that. But, you know, my natural tendency is to charge in there and say, you know, doggone it, uh, you, I want you to listen to me because I'm right about this. Well, I, it's like teeing off a golf ball in the shower. It just comes right back at you pretty quickly, you know. And I, this is not something you know from personal experience. I'm telling you things I've heard my students tell me. That's right. A- asking marriages. for a friend, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, last question for... I mean, I guess for everybody, but specifically for young folks, a lot of research has shown that specifically millennials are obsessed with uh, what is my purpose? What am I supposed to do in life? As someone who's been a pastor, an author, a scientist, a speaker, I mean, uh, almost every vocational role, what, what advice do you have for someone to say, hey, look, how do they figure out their place in this world their, and God's will for their life and just their pursuit of God. What what wisdom do you have yeah, for that? Yeah, two th- uh, good question. You're asking such good questions. I'd have two pieces of wisdom as, as best I can. The first one would be to focus your primary attention on the kind of person you're becoming, not what you're going to do, but work work on your emotional hangups and 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 your bad habits and the things that are kind of working against you. And try to work at becoming kind of an uplifting, positive person uh, and the, who, who knows how to draw close to God. And that takes practice. So that would be the first thing. So the question of what you're to do is of secondary importance. Now, it's not unimportant, though. So when it comes to the question of what should I do, I believe that if you, if you can say to yourself, I think I, I think I do love the Lord pretty sincerely, my advice is then to love God and do what you please, uh, like Augustine said. And so, I mean, the real question is, what do you want to do rather than what does God want me to do? Because he put us here. There's a place in the Old Testament where Nathan comes to David with a, and David asks Nathan, what does God want me to do? And Nathan says, God wants you to do whatever is in your heart and he'll go with you. Hmm. In other words, tell me what you want to do and I'll back you. So it's a combination, because I think there are times in life where God does have something for me to do. There are other times he doesn't. And so how do I know the difference? Well, I do my best to try to be open. So I tell the Lord, listen, I'm open. If you want to change my direction or whatever, get through to me somehow. I'm open to that. But at this point, I'm going in this direction because those are the desires of my heart. Those seem to match my strengths. And I really get energized by that. Uh, and if you want to, if you, if this is not right, please turn me around somehow. So I just tend to do what the desires of my heart are, unless I have overriding reasons to think that this might be. So like, I guess as a practical application, if someone's saying, you know, we have a, there's so much opportunity right now. I always, I'm always astounded that as a, as a young person today, you just, 
you have so many options, you know, compared to, I, I recently read uh, Benjamin Franklin's autobiography and he talks about how his, uh, his dad calls them all in and basically doles out, you're going to college because you're the smart one. We have no objective proof of this, but our mom, mom and I think you're the one who should go to college. You're going to be a printer and you three are farmers. Any questions? And then it's like at 16, you get your job and then you leave. And I think back to my, my great grandparents now wondering if I was like, oh, you know, farming doesn't fulfill me. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not finding a lot of purpose in that. And it's like, seems to be a recent phenomena that you get to obsess with, you know, what should I do? Right. And like choosing where to live. I always, I think that's an interesting example. Uh, you know, unless you have a work reason or have to be somewhere, would you say, based on what you're saying that you go, all right, God, uh, where would you like me to live? And if I don't get a clear directive or initiative, it just means, Hey, where would you, where do you like the weather? That's exactly right. Okay. And I always, I try to be open to veto. But, you know, I'll just I'll be open to saying, do you have a view on this? I don't know if you do or not, but if there is, where would be best for me to be? But if I don't get anything, and I, you know, I mean, then I just step out and go where I want to go, and I trust the Lord will be behind me. And, he, and you know, how do you know when it's God answering that uh, prayer? Trial and error through experience. <laughs> uh, at this stage, I've, I've, I've learned from my mistakes, and I've learned from times when I had some thoughts that came to me that feel, felt like they were from the outside, and then something that was told to me happened. And I uh, pray, you know, I, why don't you ask me to do something for you today? When I was walk, jogging and we were having financial crisis, I said, what should I do? And uh, it seemed like the Lord said, well, pray that, pray for, why don't you pray for $5,000 before the day's over with? I remember this story. Yeah, yeah. And I was, I can show you where I was, I was jogging. It was right up that way. But, um, uh, and I said, I'm 70, 30, Lord, this is you. Because it, it felt different than the way I talked to myself. It felt like it was coming from the outside in. It was in the first person. When I talk about God to myself, I talk about him, not I. And uh, there were other factors. So, $5,200 showed up that, that evening around 5.20, and, and it was crazy. It was, it was, so I said, now, there's no way that's a coincidence. So I'm going to go back and revisit that experience and try to figure out what it was like. And then I, I probed it and wrote some things down that were seemed to be, and I said, I'm going to look for that next time. And then I learned, I just, that's trial and error, and eventually you kind of f- learn after a you grow and so on that you're able to discern a little bit better. I still make mistakes. Uh, I'm not perfect, but uh, there I misinterpret the Bible too. I mean, there are certain passages I'm sure I don't understand yeah. what they're saying. And uh, and I guess you should have prayed for more, man. Who knows? You know. Well, being, there you have it. What was that? Or was it five thousand or yeah. fifty? I, yeah, yeah. I think it was. Put another zero on that one. You know, the good news is though, I do have the original manuscripts in okay. my study, <laughs> so that at least helps. Well, I guess Paul said right. We we see dimly, so zero gets left off here or there, right? Um, well, this has been absolutely amazing. Uh, thank you, JP Moreland, for your time, um, for all the work, and for being faithful through uh, what sounds like a really hellacious uh, few years, but culminating in something that's going to seem to bless a lot of people. I sure hope so. You're welcome, and thank you for what you're doing. Oh, that's my pleasure. Well, hey, look at us practicing gratitude, rewiring the brain as we speak. Oh, so, my gosh. That's right. All right. Thanks so much, folks. Thank you so much for listening to Kind of Christian. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review.